0: Other. All right, if you got your Bibles, open to Matthew chapter 20, Matthew chapter 20, and then Luke. Uh, we're going to start in Luke chapter 6, kind of go back and forth. If you know the way it works, New Testament goes Matthew, Mark, Luke. Uh, we're going to go back and forth between the book of Matthew and the book of Luke today. Uh, as you're flipping that direction, some of you are like, all right, finally, not Second Samuel. All right, well, yeah, we've been going through, we will get back to Second Samuel, uh, but we're going to take a detour over the next two, three weeks uh, and spend some time here uh, leading up to the cross and of course, to the resurrection, and so our study today starts with this question: Have you ever had a moment when it was now or never? All right, you ever had a moment when it was now or never? Some of you have jumped out of planes before, and you know exactly how it was. How many of you just to show of hands, real quick? How many of you have ever done skydiving before? Raise your hand. Look at you, thrill seekers! All right, deeply look up to you. I couldn't do it. I've bungee jumped three times, and that was scary enough for me. I just uh, again, I feel like with the with the bungee jumping, with the skydiving there's a point where you are so nervous and scared that peer pressure carries you that extra step, right? just carries you that step off the platform or carries you to step out of the plane, right? Uh, again, there's a moment where you're either doing it or you're not. Some of you had that experience when you asked someone on a date before, right? It's now or never. I got to do this now. I finally have the courage to make that leap, to make that jump, uh, or uh, maybe uh, maybe you just don't, right? Uh, it's, a, it's a now or never uh, moment. Well, here's the deal. The passage of we're going to read today creates a whole series of now or never moments. And we're going to look at three of those leading up uh, to uh, to Jerusalem. Look at this real quick. Chapter 20, starting in verse 17, Jesus sets up for uh, the disciples and for the crowd uh, and for Jerusalem itself a real now or never moment. Here's what it says, verse 17. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside And said to them, "We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death. And he will, and uh, will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life." Now, stop there for just a minute. Jesus lets them know this is not just any trip to Jerusalem. This is the trip to Jerusalem. This is the one that they've been building towards for three years. And honestly, that all of eternity has been building to all of human history at this point has been building to this specific trip to Jerusalem. And I love it because we find out later from the disciples, Jesus tells them exactly what's going to happen and they have no clue what he's talking about. They have no clue. But here's what they do know. They do know that something is going to happen on this trip to Jerusalem and it's going to change everything. Something's going to happen and it's very, very important. If you're taking notes, write this down. In moments of urgency, we often get a glimpse of what really matters to someone. In moments of urgency, we often get a glimpse of what really matters to someone. So I've gotten to preach the Palm Sunday message now. This is the eighth year at Waterfront uh, to preach the same passage. And so you just need to know uh, sometimes you try to shake it up a little bit, come at it from a little bit different angle. It's still The the theme is obviously still the same. It's the beginning of the end of the rescue mission uh, where Jesus is headed to the cross. But I wanted to come at it from this perspective this morning. If you look at the three stories uh, that encompass that triumph, entry into Jerusalem, it's very interesting. Matthew's version of this story starts off with Jesus letting them know this is a really important trip, everything changes after this, and then all of a sudden, even though they don't understand exactly what it means, the disciples, the crowd, and then the city of Jerusalem and the religious leaders themselves, they just know what's about to happen is very important, and it stirs a sense of urgency. Because of that, we see what these people bring to the table in their moment of urgency, and we see how Jesus teaches them and redirects them on the other side of that urgency. In moments of urgency, we often get a glimpse of what really matters to somebody. This past week, um, my uh, uh, on April the first, April the first was the seventh anniversary of my father's death. Uh, Dad was born on Friday the thirteenth, ironically in October. Uh, 1956, and then he died uh, on April 1st, April Fool's Day. It's ironic, he was born on Friday the 13th and died on April Fool's. That's perfect for a preacher, right? Um, i never forget, uh, um, I got to go into Lubbock and, and spend some time this last week, got to preach, but, uh, but it was a heavy time. Went to visit my father's grave on the anniversary too, which also was a heavy day. Uh, But uh, um, it just brought back a flood of memories and especially at the end You get to see what's really important and uh, we had a lot of things that we knew were important to dad But one that just kind of threw us off And so if any of you ever navigated a loved one having cancer before uh, Very rarely is it like the movies where they just say their last words and then all of a sudden it flatlines in the background and they die Usually um, it's something a bit more intense this cancer took over my dad's body um, it, he got to the point where he could speak, then he could just speak one sentence at a time, then he could just speak a few words, uh, and then he actually was in a, not a coma, but was uh, unable to speak for the last week. And so the last day that he could really talk, um, it was so special. He's at Covenant Hospital in Lubbock, Texas, and uh, I'll never forget that day, hundreds of people came through to pay last respects, people from the church, but other ministers then toured. I mean, it was hundreds that came through, and Dad said, let them all in, Uh, and uh, it was just beautiful. He would pray over so many of them, and so many came to just speak words of exhortation and encouragement over him. It was beautiful. By the end of the day, he was exhausted, and he looked at my sister and I, and he said, I've got someone special coming. And we were like, okay, you know, who is it? And he said, Steve Dennis. He said, make sure you're ready because Steve Dennis is coming. And my sister and I said, okay, we will, Dad. And then he laid down to fall asleep, and we were like, who the heck is Steve Dennis, right? Again, here it is, it's like the last moment, and we're like, this person's incredibly important to my dad. It's the last day that he would get to speak, right? And we're looking back, like, who in the world is Steve Dennis? And so we're running through our head all these different scenarios of who Steve could be, you know, all these conspiracy theories about who Steve is. And so sure enough, at about 11 p.m., all of a sudden, a man walks up with his wife and he says, Hello, I'm Steve Dennis. And we're like, Of course you are, right? Of course you're Steve Dennis. We said, Dad's been expecting you. Comes up, turns out he's a pastor uh, from northern Oklahoma, and he and his wife, his wife was a school teacher. Uh, And he and his wife were just dear friends of my dad. I looked at him, I was like, can you just tell me who you are? We've been waiting all day. Dad was so excited. Hundreds of people came through, but he's been so excited that you would come through. And we just said, why? Why you? Why were you the one he was consumed with? And he said, your dad, this is so beautiful. He goes, your dad was my friend. He said he'd come in through. He said we'd book him for a revival once a year. But he said, your dad was truly my friend. And then he told the most beautiful story. His wife told the story about how dad and her husband, Steve, who's still a pastor in northern Oklahoma, that they had gotten a paper spider and that they had made this little paper spider, took it up to the school and were playing pranks on the teachers at the high school. And I mean, it was just like just this normal, beautiful story. And then he said, you know, we drove all the way from Tulsa today so that we could say goodbye to your dad. They stayed 15 minutes got back in the car at around midnight, drove back to Tulsa so that she could teach the next morning. It was just beautiful. I couldn't believe it. She would end up getting ALS, and she passed away this year. Denver and I were speaking at an event in Oklahoma, and when we heard that she had ALS, we made the drive over to go and to see her just a few weeks before she passed away. And she said, I can't believe you came. We said, you can't believe we came. Are you kidding? You made that drive for dad. It was important for us to get to make that same drive for you. In a moment of urgency, you get to see what was really important. I knew that faith was important to my dad. It was a beautiful thing to get to see that normal regular friendship was also something that he deeply valued. With Jesus, it's a moment of urgency It's a moment where, again, they know change is coming. And we get to watch and see, like Jesus said, what's in a person comes out of a person. We get to see what was in a few of these people around him, and he redirects them. If you're taking notes today, our big million dollar question how does Jesus redefine a disciple's pursuit of influence? How does Jesus redefine a disciple's pursuit of influence? Where we are here in DC, It's a really cool passage to read from this perspective because a lot of us are in this city because you desire to be influential. D.C. is not better than other places. I just like to tell people it's just closer to the mouthpiece of the megaphone. What happens here is very similar to what happens in other parts of the world. It's just louder. It just gets broadcasted uh, all across the world in many cases. And so here we have a situation where people are desiring to change the world. They're desiring to be around a work of Almighty God. And we get to see Jesus just tweak and redirect Direct their mindset just a little bit. How does Jesus redefine a disciple's pursuit of influence? Now let's look at verse 20, Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, and we get the story of a mother's request here. Verse 20, it says, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. Stop right there for just a minute. The story of Jesus heading towards Jerusalem on this last trip when they realize it's a moment of urgency, when they realize there's going to be a before and an after on this trip, all of a sudden the sons of Zebedee, who by the way are James and John, two of the major heroes of the faith, much of our theology that we take from either the apostle Paul or from the apostle John, that he's one of the sons of Zebedee and James, the other one, James is the first apostle to be martyred. Stephen's the first Christian martyr, but of the 12, Judas takes his own life, but James is the one who's the first apostle to be martyred. Their mother shows up and it says she kneels down with her sons and asks him for a favor they think that when Jesus marches on Jerusalem, he's going to establish himself as the new king of Israel. Overthrow the Roman government, overthrow the religious leaders, and then he's going to establish a new government. So what do they do? In that moment of urgency, they fall down and say, oh, King Jesus, how beautiful your majesty. Um, I've got a request for you. And Jesus is like, oh no. Look at what he says here. Verse 21. What do you want? Jesus asked. I mean, it reads just the way it's supposed to. They're kneeling down. These are people that have walked with him for three years. And Jesus goes, oh no, what do you want? Ready? She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink from the cup that I'm going to drink from? We can, they said. Now, stop right there for just a minute. you got to read this the way that it's spoken here. Jesus looks at them and goes, I just told you I was going to be betrayed into the hands of men, crucified, and then resurrected on the third day. Can you really go through this process with me? And they're like, yeah. If it means I can sit in that seat of honor, if it means that I can sit one of us at your right hand, one at your left, it'll be King Jesus and the Zebedee family right over here, and we're going to rule this sucker. We're going to rule this world. Look at what Jesus says, verse 23. Jesus says to them, "Uh, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left, that's not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom they have been prepared by my Father. And underline have been prepared. Some of you who work in government need to see this. The seats of honor are prepared by the Lord for specific individuals. That's a good word, isn't it? It's not something you earn. It's not something you fight your way into. He says very specifically, they've been prepared by my father for someone very specific. Verse 24: When the other 10 heard this, they were indignant with the two brothers. You gotta love it because Zebedee basically was like, you ever had somebody call shotgun before? All right, They basically wanted to call shotgun to sit in the front seat and did you ever have this kid that called shotgun eternity? Did you ever have that before? That was the friend in high school that wanted shotgun all throughout high school and so they would go shotgun eternity, ha ha got it, now I've got it forever. That's basically what these guys had tried to do here they tried to call for the front seat for eternity and the other ten hear about it and they're like, dude, you're cheating, this is not fair look at what Jesus does, he completely redirects directs it. Jesus calls them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. The rest of the world is built on this pyramid scheme that you try to be the one at the top of the mountain. You try to be the one at the top of the pyramid. Verse 26, not so with you. Underline and highlight, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And just as the son of man did not not come to be served, but to serve. Look at this. And to give his life as a ransom for many. I want you to underline three words here. Underline servant, slave, and ransom. What Jesus has just done here that's so beautiful is he has actually developed a hierarchy of selflessness. He comes in and says, you want to be the one in the seat of honor. You want to be the one that is praised by others. He says, you need to be the one that looks for a place to serve above all else. Notice that there is a lessened level of freedom when it comes to being someone identified as a servant. He then comes in and says, and if you want to be greater than that, you want to be a slave. Someone who has even less freedom. And then he comes back and says, but if you're going to follow me, I am giving my life as a ransom for many. Servant has less freedom. Slave has even less. And ransom. You ever thought about a ransom? The ransom itself is the one group in the kidnapping process that ends up getting absolutely nothing in return. The kidnappers get the ransom. The people who've had someone kidnapped receive that family member back. And then the ransom, the ransom is just in complete submission in the entire situation. Catch what Jesus is saying there. Selfless submission to God. That's where the glory of the Father comes from. That's where blessing truly comes from. If you're taking notes, how does Jesus redefine a disciple's pursuit of influence? Number one, choose selfless service over pursuing honor. Choose selfless service over pursuing honor. You ever played musical chairs before? Musical chairs is a fun and satisfying game because there are a whole bunch of people and one less seat, right? So you fight to be the one to sit in that spot. Have you ever won musical chairs before? It's thrilling because you were the one that at the end of the deal is sitting in the one seat that's possible while everyone else is looking on at you in your glory. There's some of you in this city, and that is your desire that whatever field it is that you're in, that you would be the one at the end of the day that has fought off all the others and you're the one gloriously sitting in that seat, sitting in that chair. What we learn from Jesus is those seats of honor when it comes to eternity, those seats have been prepared by the Father for specific individuals. That doesn't mean that you don't do things with excellence. It doesn't mean that you don't work with all your heart. Scripture speaks to that. But if the goal is to be the one sitting in that seat and not to live for Christ in all things, then at the end of the day, you end up with a very empty existence, and you're just one brutal musical chairs player away, From being the one staring on the outside looking in. I've told you the long version of the story before. I'll tell you the short version. I was the type of person. I just always wanted to be married. Okay. From the time I was a kid. I mean, I'm just telling you, even the way I dated, I didn't do a lot of casual dating. I was the weirdo that just always wanted to get married. My parents met when my mom was 14 and in the ninth grade and my dad was 16 and a sophomore. And so they met early. My mom was my dad's very first girlfriend, and so that just doesn't happen, you know. But for them, it did, and that was the modeled relationship that I always saw. And so, because of that, I always kind of went into relationships wanting to be married. I've said this before too. There's two types of people in dating: there's pioneers, right, and then there's settlers. Homesteader might be a better word because you don't want to settle in marriage, all right? Uh, but, uh, but homesteaders, right? People that are that are courageous and, and adventurous, and then you've got others that you want to settle down, right? You want to you want a homestead That'd always been something placed in my heart. But I dated someone for three and a half years. We were not supposed to be married. And I did learn the difference, I guess, between being a settler and a homesteader in that regard. She had things she needed to do. She was called to do. I had things I was called to do. But I longed to be in a relationship. You ever had that feeling before? I longed to be in a relationship, and not just any relationship. I longed to be in a forever relationship. But I needed to learn how to not just be alone, but how to put Christ on the throne is my main focus. And I really did get to a point where I feel like this with all my heart, that he could have left me single for the rest of my life, and I would have been happy serving him. It came to a head, I'd been single for about a year and a half, and I'll never forget, um, I had just worked at a camp uh, in New York State, and uh, it's right at the crossroads of New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Montague, New Jersey is the closest township. Milford, Pennsylvania was the largest you know, city uh, in that area. Uh, worked for a, a group called Trailblazers uh, while I was up there. Had a wonderful experience that summer, uh, but was flying back to Texas, and I had to take the bus up to the L- airport in LaGuardia in New York City, uh, and LaGuardia was under construction. Shocker that LaGuardia was under construction. It's under construction constantly. Anyway, this particular year, Again, I desired to be in a relationship, but I had truly given my heart completely to God, and I was trying to live by the passage that we state today. I was trying to live a life of service, serving and, and putting, uh, putting Christ as my main focus. Well, I'll never forget, get to the airport at LaGuardia, and they had torn up the terminal that I was flying out of. I was flying to Dallas, but they were doing a, 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 an indirect flight to Wisconsin, of all places, and then flying us to Dallas uh, after that because of some weather that was happening. Well, anyway, I'm sitting at the airport in a seat, and then all of a sudden a flight dismisses and it went from where the seats were uh, where the seats were plenty to all of a sudden there were people literally sitting on the floor in every direction. Well next to me, I'm in my Oklahoma State University sweatshirt, and next to me uh, was a young woman my same age in a Princeton sweatshirt, all right? Now, just for the record, I thought, man, maybe I can date up here. You know what I mean? Anyway, I'm just not trashing my degree, all right? I'm just saying she was in the Princeton shirt next to me. And so I look over and try to kind of get her attention. And for her, she's got a chemistry book. She just stared at that chemistry book and did not look up. I took the hint, all right, that the Oklahoma State was not going to get to hang out with Princeton that day, all right? And uh, I remember just going, okay, no big deal. I pull up my Bible. It's who I am. would wasn't showy or anything. Just pull up my Bible, and I start to read it. Well, as the area starts to fill, I mean, people all over the floors, there's nowhere to go because there are flight delays because of the weather. Nobody can get out or go anywhere. And so the, all of a sudden, the seat that we're in has become pretty prime real estate. She's next to me. I'm here on the side. A woman who's in her late 70s, early 80s comes around the corner, and she's carrying a whole bunch of bags. She didn't want to check anything. And she trips in the middle of the group, and the bags spill all over the floor. Well, again, nobody moves, especially in the chairs. Nobody moves because don't know how long it's going to be until they start boarding the flights. But again, service. There's a moment to selflessly serve. So I hop up, set my stuff down off to the side, I said, ma'am, do you need help? And she goes, I just, there's so many people. I said, well, let me help you. I take the bags and I go, you can have my seat over here on the side. Walk her over, sit her down in the seat. She goes, oh, young man, I think she called me her guardian angel. You're my guardian angel. I set the little bags off the side, grab my Bible, and I go and sit on the floor. And I can feel the group. Yeah, you, know, you can feel the group turning to watch. I can just feel the group watching at that point. Well, a few minutes pass. They call for the woman's flight. And when they do, I said, ma'am, can I carry your bags over there to the gate? She goes, oh, that would be wonderful. I sure would appreciate it. So I grab her bags, carry them over to the side. They let her board the plane first, and then the seat is open again. Walk her over there. She says, thank you. I walk back over, sit down at the seat, and most of the group moves over to go and get on that flight that had just boarded. I open my Bible and start to read again, and then all of a sudden, I feel two Princeton eyes (laughs) staring at me in the side of the head. I stop and check the eyebrows a little bit. (laughs) And then I turn. She goes, I saw what you did there. She goes, that was really nice. And I think my line was, I do a lot of nice things. I mean, whatever it was, right? (laughs) (laughs) We start having a conversation. We talk. When they call for our flight, flight attendant calls my name. I walk over. Flight attendant says, hey, we all saw what you did. How did two first-class tickets for you and that girl from Princeton sound? (laughs) They seen us in first class next to each other, and I got her email address at the end. Hallelujah. There it is. No, I'm just kidding. All right. I never sent her a message. It's another story for another day, because the Lord had Autumn, my wife of now 17 years, uh, waiting just after that. i tell you that story to say this. Okay, listen. Service, when we fight for the seat of honor, the world watches that. And you know what you say? When you fight for the seat of honor and push away from a life of selfless service, you are saying to those around you that that seat is more important than your calling and the code that you live by in Jesus Christ. Amen? We've got to come to the point that we put Christ first and we follow his example. Lead. Through service. If you're taking notes, you can write this down if you want to. Influence has more to do with character and integrity than it does with position or title. Influence has more to do with character integrity than it does with position or title. And you would say, but Zach, that's easy for you to say. You're married to the love of your life for 17 years. That's easy for you to say. Uh, it seems like the Lord has blessed you. Absolutely. But you got to know that mindset, that mindset is definitely deeply important. Look at Luke chapter six, save your spot in Matthew, but flip over to Luke chapter six, verse 38. And here's what Jesus has to say about the person that doesn't want to give, that wants to hold on to what they have uh, when the truth is God has called for it. Look at verse 38, Luke chapter six, 38, give and it will be given to you. Look at this. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap with the measure you use. It will be measured to you. Stop right there for just a minute. What we get in this passage is from the beginning, give and it will be given to you. And he says not just what you've given, but pressed down, shaken up. I mean, it is a prepared drink poured into your lap, more than you could ever receive. Choose selfless service over pursuing honor. If God has given you blessing, He's done it that you might bless those around you. It begs the question are you looking for seats of honor or places to be of service? Are you looking for seats of honor or are you looking for places to be of service? I can tell you firsthand, I had desires that the Holy Spirit had placed into my heart, and I believe that being married is one of those. He had placed that desire, not just to be with someone, but I truly believe the, delight, or that the that the desire God had placed in my heart was to be married and to have a family. But I had to submit to his lordship before he could send me my forever relationship. Are you looking for seats of honor or are you looking for places to be of service? Now flip back over to Matthew chapter 20 and let's see what happens next. Jesus says, time is short. We're headed to the capitol. We're headed in. Everything's going to be different after this. Zebedee, The Zebedee family shows up and tries to make a play at power. And then in the next set of verses, you've got a huge crowd of people that desire to make Jesus king, that desire for this to be his inaugural moment. And now look at verse 29. It says, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Stop right there for just a minute. The sons of Zebedee see a a moment for power, and they make a play at it with urgency. Here, we've got two men who are blind, and one of them is a guy named Bartimaeus. We find that out from Mark. That lets you know Bartimaeus is named as the miracle. He was probably around the disciples moving forward in the early church. He makes sure, Mark says, don't forget Bartimaeus was one of them in that group. Here they are by the roadside, and all of a sudden they hear Jesus is coming. This is not just any trip. This is the trip to Jerusalem. If he was accessible, now is the time. He's going to walk right in front of us here in this moment. So what do they do? They shout, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. They're claiming faith in what they're calling out to him. Now, verse 31, it says, but the crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. I love Luke's version here. Luke says not just the crowd rebuked them, it says those leading the way rebuked them. The ones who were the leaders, the handlers that were leading the way to Jerusalem, starting the parade as they marched on the capital. they stand up and go, dudes, be quiet. This is bigger than your need for healing. You could have gotten healed before now. This is bigger than your need for healing. Jesus is up to something macro, so much larger than just your piddly little need. It says, but they shouted all the louder. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. It says, then Jesus stopped. And then Jesus stopped. And he called them. What do you want me to do for you? Notice the similarities between verse 32 and verse 21. He says to the sons of Zebedee, what do you want? He says to the men on the side of the road, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them. Look at this. And touched their eyes. Underline touched their eyes. And immediately they received their sight and they followed him. There are stories in scripture where all Jesus had to do was speak it and healing happened. In fact, we know all he had to do was think it and healing could happen. When he touches their eyes, it's very intentional. He stops the group, touches their eyes, and all of a sudden when they are healed, they spring to their feet and they follow him in procession. And one of them was Bartimaeus, who is worth naming. Isn't that cool? One of them. They would. Mark says, you're going to want to remember that Bartimaeus was one of them, that he was one that was healed that day. If you're taking notes, how does Jesus redefine a disciple's pursuit of influence? Number one, choose selfless service over pursuing honor. And number two, prioritize personal relationship over pleasing the crowd. Prioritize personal relationship over pleasing the crowd. I went to Rest Haven Cemetery in Lubbock, Texas on the seven-year anniversary of my father's death this last week. I didn't go to visit the cemetery. I went to visit his grave. Now, even though macro, there are a lot of people whose bodies are buried in that cemetery, his body was the one that I wanted to visit. And can I tell you what else is interesting? I found out sometimes your brain can kind of compartmentalize. The four men that I've loved most in this world are all buried within about 100 yards of each other in Rest Haven Cemetery. My dad, two rows up in front of him is my grandfather, B.J. Randalls, who was the principal of Monterey High School in Lubbock, Texas for years and years. My grandfather, Robert Dennis, who owned a printing company called Dennis Brothers Printing in Lubbock, um, and then my Uncle Tom White, uh, who was like a second father to me while Dad was on the road. Uh, my Uncle Tom was the one who, again, I just deeply love and respect as much as anyone on this planet. That's interesting. So many graves, but four, four that where there was deep personal relationship. Sometimes we can get caught in believing. That the group scenario, that the macro scenario, is how God sees the world in its entirety. And if the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one, to quote Star Trek 2, all right? Okay? If the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one, right? There it was, Brent. That was for you, all right? Okay? Listen. That we just have to deal with it. But listen to me. Don't miss this. That's not the way God sees the world so big, he's so powerful, he's so strong, that God can see the big and the small at the same time. Save your spot there in Matthew chapter 20 and flip open to Luke chapter 15. Here's what he has to say. By the way, if you want to write this down, you can. Mobs have immediate impact, but rarely any long-term influence. Mobs have immediate impact, but rarely any long-term influence. Now flip over to Luke 15, and we're going to look at verses 3 through 7. In this beautiful passage, Jesus talks about leaving the 99 to go after the one. But read through this powerful passage. It says, verse 3, Then Jesus told the the disciples this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he does find it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. In the same way... I tell you, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Stop there for just a minute. The picture in this passage that Jesus teaches so beautifully uh, in what we just read in Matthew is that the view of Almighty God is not, Woo! Crossed a billion Christians this year on planet Earth. Woo! Let's hold a party in celebration that we cross the one billion mark. No! When does the party happen? When one sinner is brought to repentance. That's when the heavens rejoice. It's not, bro, I got 99 sheep. Can you believe that? No. He says, bro, man, Kyle is in my flock. That's the rejoicing that takes place in heaven. David is in my flock. That's when the rejoicing takes place. Alyssa is in my flock. That's when the heavens rejoice and the angels cry out holy. What a beautiful thing for us to remember. On the way to the cross, on the way to this powerful Passion Week, Jesus prioritizes the personal relationship over making good time with the crowd. It begs the question, do you see the group and not the people? Do you see the group and not the people? Sometimes we can get so tied up in the numbers, whether it be in their bank account number, whether it be in our poll number, whether it be in um, the, the, the uh, the, the way that the depth chart goes together in our work situation. We can get so tied up in the numbers that we miss the testimony of the people. Now flip back over our last little story, the lead-in to what this week is really all about. Flip open to Matthew 21, and now let's read the next story, the triumphant entry, verses 1 through 11. It says, So as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples. I love it that they're not named here. Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there. Underline, you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. (laughs) Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you. Underline, see your king comes to you. Gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Stop there for just a minute. You see, in the moment of urgency, Jesus marching on the capital, Thousands of people with him that he's picked up from village to village as he's headed to Jerusalem. The crowd is sitting there rubbing their hands together and going, Finally, we can break the yoke of Roman rule. And then you've got another group going, Finally, we can break the yoke of the religious leaders. Finally, we can break the yoke of the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. Finally, we can remake this into something that fits our desires and fits our needs. And I love this because they're expecting Jesus to go, you know what, buy me a war horse, organize the militias, get all the people from the countryside together. We march on the capital to reform the government. And instead, Jesus goes about that. I need a donkey. Not just a donkey, I need a borrowed donkey we're not gonna go buy one I want you to go and ask a guy for one and if the guy looks at you and goes why in the world are you stealing a donkey that's the picture that you have in that passage it's so not desirable that the person who owns it would go are you seriously stealing my donkey just look and say the Lord needs it and they would go you crazy take it all right it's all yours right That's the picture in this beautiful passage. Give us a king. This is our moment of urgency. This is where we take back our country. Instead, Jesus says, just give me a donkey so that they know what we're actually doing here. Look at the next part. It says, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they placed their cloaks on them. They didn't even buy a saddle. And Jesus sat on the cloaks And a very large crowd, not only a very large crowd, this is thousands and thousands, more than the 5,000 that he fed that day, that that he fed previously. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and while others cut branches from the trees and spread them along the road, the crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You know what Hosanna means? It means, Lord, save now. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, and they asked, "Who is this?" The crowds answered, "This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee." You see, Jesus enters the city the same way that he entered the world, accessible to all people. If you're taking notes, final influence principle number three is choose accessibility over exclusivity. Choose accessibility over exclusivity. Do you remember Luke chapter 2? Who is it that gets the celebration of the heavenly hosts at the beginning of Jesus' life? He could have chosen any way in the course of human history. He could have chosen any way, any time to introduce himself. He chooses the night shift to the shepherds who are out in the middle of the field. The angels show up, the heavenly hosts of amazing, the heavenly hosts of Almighty God show up and they go, unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. This will be a a sign unto you. You'll find him wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. He is here for all people, Luke chapter 2 says. Don't you see? Everything about Jesus coming to the world was about accessibility. The problem wasn't the Roman government. The problem wasn't the Sadducees and the religious leaders. The problem was sin. Sin is what separates us from Almighty God. And that's what he was marching into Jerusalem to eradicate. It wasn't about a government. It wasn't about religious policies. It was about sin separating us from fellowship with the Father. So what does he do? He's born unto all people. They proclaim it to the night shift workers, the night shift shepherds. In the middle of a census, they were the ones who drew the shortest of the shortest straws. And then he says, born unto you in a manger. He wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't in the plaza hotel of Bethlehem. He was in a barn. Every ounce of the Christmas story screams the accessibility of Almighty God. What a beautiful picture. So Jesus looks at the disciples and they're like, Are we booking the war horse? Are we booking the chariot? To bring you in on. We book in the stagecoach. To bring you in on. And Jesus goes. No. Let's do a borrowed donkey on this one fellas. Go get the donkey. I want them to know. I'm not coming against Rome. I'm not coming against religious leaders. I'm not coming with the militias. I'm coming to set you free from sin. If you're taking notes. You write this down if you want to. The son of God. Could have crafted any way imaginable. To enter Jerusalem the final time. And he chose a borrowed donkey. The Son of God could have crafted any way imaginable to enter Jerusalem the final time. And he chose a borrowed donkey. One last little story, and we'll call it a day today. I don't get to go to many concerts, but one I went to back in the day really stood with me. It's an old-school Christian singer named Stephen Curtis Chapman. You ever heard of Stephen Curtis Chapman before? SCC for some of you, all right, on the web. Anyway, for you kids on the interwebs, all right, there it is, all right. Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote songs, been writing now for almost 40 years. Um, just a beautiful songwriter. Well, I got to go years ago with my wife to a concert, and they had all these different bands that were playing, but Stephen Curtis Chapman was the headliner. He was the one, uh, he was the one that was going to play the, at the end. I think there were between seven and 10,000 people at this specific concert. And again, he's the one that's playing at the end. Well, I'll never forget, usually when you go to a concert... The headliner is the one that you're kind of building up towards. And so because of the lesser known bands, they're setting the stage. And then the headliner comes out and finishes. Well, we're, we're there with a huge group of college students that we brought with us. And I remember we're at the concert. And then all of a sudden, somebody walks out that's usually like the hype person to come out and hype everybody up for the concert that's about to happen. But he walks up and it's Stephen Curtis Chapman. And none of us know it. He walks out, just got his guitar, grabs the mic. And says, hello everyone, my name is Stephen and I just wanted to welcome you to the concert tonight. And then all of a sudden you can see it. Again, it's, it's 8,000, 10, 5, 10,000 people. So they start registering what's happening and they just start to cheer. And he goes, no, no, don't cheer. He said, uh, I'm so grateful to get to be here with you. And he said, we want this to be something that has the focus on the Lord. He had taken all of that praise and focused it towards heaven. He said, there's a song that's really touched my heart and I'd like it if we could sing it together. A guy named Chris Tomlin... Big name worship leader at the time had written a song called Forever. Forever God is faithful, Forever God is strong, Forever you are with us, Forever. Stephen Gunters Chapman didn't even play one of his own songs. He gets up and leads the crowd in worship with this song, Forever. And then it's no band. It's just him by himself with his guitar. Like the worship that you'd experience at Fellowship of Christian Athletes or that we had at our college ministry. We couldn't even afford a band to be there. And I'm telling you, it was just this beautiful, amazing moment. And then he goes, all right, I'll see you guys in about an hour and a half. This has been great. Prayed over the crowd and then walked off the stage. I mean, they didn't even know if they should clap. It was just such a beautiful, holy moment that had taken place. Been to so many concerts. That sticks out at me. As the way that it was introduced because it was so gentle, it was so accessible, and the focus was in the right place. Last little question for you. Are you living for something that almost certainly results in extreme isolation? Are you living for something that almost certainly results in extreme isolation? If you are the person trying to be the last one in the chair in the DC game of musical chairs... You need to know it's not a bad thing to try to live a life of excellence and to pursue your relationship with God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But if the goal is to be the one in the chair, it's a pretty lonely place when you finally are the only one left in the chair. Hadn't you figured that out yet? When you live your life for exclusivity, your friend groups get smaller and smaller and smaller. Your freedom gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And then before you know it, you may be the one sitting in the chair who's the big shot making the decision. But it's a very, very lonely place to be. The Christ-like example is not that you shun those positions, but you don't live for them. Is that a good word? You don't shun those positions or those opportunities, but you don't live for them. You live for Christ. You pursue relationship with him above all else. And when we do that, we follow his example. Thanks for listening today. Happy Palm Sunday, all right? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to bow our heads for prayer, analyze in our heart if the Spirit is speaking to us today, and then we'll make some decisions. Are you ready? If you'll bow your heads for prayer.